The Ladies of the Covenant Memoirs of Distinguished Scottish Female Characters Embracing the Period of the Covenant and the Persecution by Rev. James Anderson Redfield, Clinton Hall, New York, 1851 Preface In collecting materials for the Martyrs of the Bass, published some time ago in a volume entitled The Bass Rock, it occurred to the author from the various notices he met with of ladies who were distinguished for their patriotic interest or sufferings in the cause of nonconformity during the period of the covenant and particularly during the period of the persecution that sketches of the most eminent or best known of these ladies would be neither uninteresting nor unedifying. In undertaking such a work at this distance of time, he is aware of the disadvantage under which he labors from the poverty of the materials at his disposal compared with the more abundant store from which a contemporary writer might have executed the same task. He, however, flatters himself that the materials which, with some industry, he has collected are not unworthy of being brought to light, the more especially as the female biography of the days of the covenant and of the persecution is a field which has been trodden by no preceding writer and which may therefore be presumed to have something of the freshness of novelty. The facts in these lives have been gathered from a widely scattered variety of authorities, both manuscript and printed. From the voluminous manuscript records of the Privy Council, deposited in Her Majesty's General Register House, Edinburgh, and from the Wadrill manuscripts belonging to the Library of the Faculty of Advocates, Edinburgh, the author has derived much assistance. The former of these documents he was obligingly permitted to consult by William Pitt Dundas, Esquire, Deputy Clerk of Her Majesty's Register House, and to the Wardrobe manuscripts he has at all times obtained the readiest access through the liberality of the curators of the Advocates' Library and the kind attentions of the librarians. He has also had equally ready access to such books in that invaluable library, many of them rare and expensive, as serve to illustrate his subject. In the course of the work, he has had occasion to acknowledge his obligations to several gentlemen from whom he has obtained important information. As to some of the ladies of rank here noticed, there probably exist in the form of letters and other documents materials for more fully illustrating their lives among the family manuscripts of their descendants to which the author has not had access. The publication of such papers, if they exist, or of selections from such other papers as relate to the civil and ecclesiastical transactions of Scotland in the olden time, which may be lying, moth-eaten and moldering away, in the repositories of our noble families, would furnish valuable contributions to this department of the literature of our country. And an example in this respect, well worthy of imitation, has been set by Lord Lindsay in his very interesting work entitled Lives of the Lindsays. These biographies it has been thought proper to proceed by an introduction containing various miscellaneous observations bearing on the subject, but the chief object of which is to give a general view of the patriotic interest in the cause of religion taken by the ladies of Scotland during the period which these inquiries embrace. The appendix consists of a number of papers illustrative of passages in the text, some of which have been previously printed, and others of which are now printed from the originals or from copies for the first time. In compiling these memoirs, it has been the aim of the author throughout to reduce within moderate limits 
his multifarious materials, which might easily have been spread over a much larger surface. At the same time, he has endeavored to bring together the most important facts to be known from accessible sources respecting these excellent women, and has even introduced a variety of minute particulars in their history, which he was at considerable, and as some may think, unnecessary pains to discover. But he believes that careful research into minute particulars in the lives of ladies so eminent, and who were closely connected with so important a period of the history of our Church, as that of the struggles and sufferings of the Scottish Covenanters in the cause of religious and civil liberty, is not to be considered as altogether unnecessary labor. As to some departments of history and, bi- and biography, says Foster, I never can bring myself to feel that it is worthwhile to undergo all this labor. But, speaking of the English Puritans, he adds, with respect to that noble race of saints of which the world will not see the like again, for in the millennium good men will not be formed and sublimed amidst persecution. It is difficult to say what degree of minute investigation is too much, especially in an age in which it is the fashion to misrepresent and decry them. This remark is equally applicable to the Scottish Covenanters. Their preeminent worth warrants and will reward the fullest investigation into their history, independent of the light which this will throw on the character and manners of their age. Of course, it is not meant to affirm that they were exalted above the errors and infirmities of humanity, or that we are implicitly to follow them in everything, whether in sentiment or in action, as if we had not as good a right to act on the great Protestant principle of judging for ourselves as they had, or as if they had been inspired like prophets and apostles. But it may be safely asserted that, though not entitled to be ranked as perfect and inspired men, they had attained to an elevation and compass of Christian character which would have rendered them no unmeet associates and coadjutors of prophets and apostles, and even many of their measures, ecclesiastical and civil, bore the stamp of such maturity of wisdom as showed them to be in advance not only of their own age, but even of ours, and the defeat of which measures, it may be said without exaggeration, has thrown back the religious condition of Britain and Ireland for centuries. The author, Edinburgh, September 1850. Contents Introduction Lady Anne Cunningham, Marchioness of Hamilton Lady Boyd Elizabeth Melville, who was Lady Colcross Lady Jane Campbell, Viscountess of Kenmure Lady Margaret Douglas, Marchioness of Argyle, Mrs. James Guthrie, Mrs. James Durham, Mrs. John Carstairs, Lady Anne, Duchess of Hamilton, Mrs. William Veach, Mrs. John Livingstone, etc., Lady Anne Lindsay, Duchess of Roths, Lady Mary Johnston, Countess of Crawford, Barbara Cunningham, Lady Caldwell, Lady Colville, Catherine Rigg, Lady Cavers, Isabel Allison, Marion Harvey, Helen Johnston, Lady Graydon, Lilius Dunbar, Mrs. Campbell, Margaret McLaughlin and Margaret Wilson, Lady Anne Mackenzie, Countess of Balcars, afterward Countess of Argyle, 
Henrietta Lindsay, Lady Campbell of Auchenbreck, Griselle Hume, Lady Bailey of Jerviswood, Lady Catherine Hamilton, Duchess of Athol. Contents of the Appendix Number 1, Letter of Mr. Robert McWard to Lady Ar Ardross. Number 2, The Marchioness of Argyll's Interview with Middleton After the Condemnation of Her Husband. Number 3, Marchioness of Argyll and Her Son, the Earl of Argyll. Number 4, Letter of Mrs. John Carstairs to Her Husband. Number 5, Suspected Corruption of Clarendon's History. Number 6, Indictment of Isabel Allison and Marion Harvey. Number 7, Apprehension of Hume of Graydon and the scuffle in which Thomas Kerr of Hayhope was killed. Number 8, The Fiery Cross Carried Through the Shire of Moray in 1679. Number 9, Desired Extension of the Indulgence to Morayshire. Number 10, sense in which the Covenanters refused to say, God save the King. Number 11, Countess of Argyle's sympathy with the Covenanters. Number 12, a letter of the Earl of Argyle to his lady in ciphers. Number 13, extracts from a letter of the Countess of Argyle to her son Colin, Earl of Balcars. Number 14, Sufferings of Sir Duncan Campbell of Auchenbreck. Introduction The period embraced in the following sketches is the reigns of King James VI, his son, and two grandsons, but more particularly the reigns of his two grandsons, Charles II and James VII. The materials for illustrating the lives of such of our female worthies as lived during their reigns being most abundant. All the ladies here sketched whether in humble life or in exalted stations, were distinguished by their zeal or by their sufferings in the cause of religious truth. And it is by this zeal and these sufferings that the most of them are, are best known to us now. Our notices, then, it is obvious, will be chiefly historical, though not so exclusively historical as to forbid the introduction of such illustrations of the personal piety of these ladies as time has spared. And of such portions of their domestic history as may seem to be invested with interest and to furnish matter of instruction. It is first of all worthy of special notice that the peculiar ecclesiastical principles contended for or sympathized with by all these ladies were substantially the same. This arose from the circumstance that all these monarchs sought to subvert substantially the same ecclesiastical principles. Bent on the acquisition of absolute power, they avowedly and perseveringly labored to overturn the Presbyterian government of the Scottish Church, which, from its favorable tendency to the cause of liberty, was an obstruction in their path, and to impose by force upon the Scottish people the prelatic hierarchy, which promised to be more subservient to their wishes. As to the means for attaining this object, all these monarchs were unprincipled and unscrupulous and each more degenerate than his predecessor became, to an increasing degree, reckless in the measures he adopted. James VI, who plumed himself on his kingcraft, endeavored by corrupting and overawing the general assemblies of the church to get them to destroy their liberties by introducing with their own hands prelacy 
and the ceremonies of the Anglican Church. Charles I adopted a more bold, direct, and expeditious course, attempting to impose a book of canons and a liturgy by his sole authority, without consulting any church judicatory whatever, in which, however, he failed of success, his tyranny issuing in the triumph of the cause he intended to destroy. Charles II, following in the steps of his father, proceeded on his restoration to establish prelacy on the ruins of presbytery in like manner by his sole authority, and having more in his power than his father, to enforce conformity by the exaction of fines by imprisonment, banishment, torture, public executions, and massacres in the fields. James VII, who went even further than his brother, father, or grandfather, attempted to exercise absolute power in a more unmitigated form than they had ever done, and determined what none of them had ventured to do to make popery the established religion throughout his domains. And in this infatuated course he obstinately persevered till he alienated from him the great body of his subjects of all ranks, until after a short reign of three years he was driven from his throne. Thus the same ecclesiastical principles being assailed by all these monarchs, the testimony of our Presbyterian ancestors under all their reigns was substantially the same. The great principles for which they contended may be reduced to these three, from which all the rest flow as corollaries. First, that Christ is the alone king and head of his church, having the alone right to appoint her form of government. Secondly, that presbytery is the only form of church government which he has instituted in his word. And thirdly, that the church is free in her government from every other jurisdiction except that of Christ. These principles, all the ladies sketched in this volume, either maintained or sympathized with, and many of them suffered much in their behalf. During the whole extent of the period we have embraced, there is evidence of the existence of a public religious spirit among the women of Scotland. And as we advance downward, we find this spirit becoming more generally diffused. In the reign of James VI, ladies in every station of life warmly espoused the cause of the ministers who opposed the monarch in his attempts to establish prelacy. Some of them even wielded the pen in the cause with no small effect. The wives of Mr. James Lawson and Mr. Walter Balcankill ministers of Edinburgh, wrote vigorously in defense of their husbands who had been compelled to fly to England for having publicly condemned in their sermons the Black Acts, as they were called, of the Servile Parliament of 1684, by which presbytery was overthrown and the liberties of the church laid at the feet of the king. They boldly entered the lists with Patrick Adamson, Archbishop of St. Andrews, who had written in condemnation of the conduct of their husbands, and answered him in a long paper exposing with energy, acuteness, and success the falsehood of his assertions and the imbecility or fallacy of his reasonings, treating him at the time with little ceremony. As to the old and common reproach, they say, against God's servants, troubles of commonwealths, rebels against princes, irreverent speakers against those in authority, they may bear with it since their master was similarly reproached, Yea, was even accused of speaking by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. We will say but this much shortly, they add, as Elias said to Ahab, It is thou and thy father's house that trouble Israel. 
It is thou and the remnant of you pharisaical prelates, because you are not trained up in the place of popes that would mix heaven and earth, ere the pomp of your prelacies decay. Footnote 1, Calderwood's History, Volume 4, page 127. The power of this defense may be estimated from the irritation which it, ca- which it caused the prelate, and from the manner in which he met it. So completely had the weaker vessel pinned him, that though he had many great gifts, but specially excellent in the tongue and pen, footnote 2, James Melville's Diary, page 293, he shrunk from encountering these spirited females with their own weapons and skulking behind the throne directed against them the thunderbolt of a royal proclamation which charged them instantly under pain of rebellion to leave their manses. This they accordingly did, selling their household furniture and delivering the keys of their manses to the magistrates. By the same proclamation, several other ladies of respectability who are described as worse affected to the obedience of our late Acts of Parliament are commanded under under the same pains to remove from the capital and retire beyond the water of Tay till they give further declaration of their disposition. Footnote 3, McCree's Life of Melville, Volume 1, page 327. The ardent and heroic attachment to the cause of presbytery displayed by Mrs. Welsh, the wife of Mr. John Welsh, Minister of Air, and the wives of the other five ministers who, with him, were tried at Linlithgow in 1606 on a charge of high treason for holding a general assembly at Aberdeen in July the preceding year, is also worthy of special notice. When informed that a verdict of guilty was brought in by a corrupt jury, a verdict which inferred the penalty of death, instead of lamenting their fate, they praised God who had given their husbands courage to stand to the cause of their master, adding that, like him, they had been judged and condemned under covert of night. Footnote, McCree's Life of Knox, Volume 2, page 271. Of these ladies, Mrs. Welsh, who was the daughter of our illustrious reformer, John Knox, is best known. Footnote. Her name was Elizabeth. She was his third and youngest daughter by his second wife, Margaret Stewart, daughter of Lord Ochiltree, a nobleman of amiable disposition and his steady friend under all circumstances. A curious anecdote connected with Knox's marriage to Lord Ochiltree's daughter is contained in a letter written by Mr. Robert Miller, Minister of Paisley, to Wadrow, the historian of the sufferings of the Church of Scotland, dated November 15, 1722. And as it has never before been printed, it may be here inserted. Quote, Mr. John Campbell, minister at Craigie, unquote, says Mr. Miller, quote, told me this story of Mr. Knox's marriage so far as I mind it. John Knox, before the light of the Reformation broke up, traveled among several honest families in the west of Scotland who were converts to the Protestant religion. Particularly, he visited oft Stuart, Lord Ochiltree's family, preaching the gospel privately to those who were willing to receive it. The lady and some of the family were converts. Her ladyship had a chamber, table, stool, and candlestick for the prophet, and one night about supper says to him, Mr. Knox, I think you are at at a loss by want of a wife, to which he said, Madam, I think nobody will take such a wanderer as I. 
To which she replied, Sir, if that be your objection, I'll make inquiry to find an answer against our next meeting. The lady accordingly addressed herself to her eldest daughter, telling her she might be very happy if she could marry Mr. Knox, who would be a great reformer and a credit to the church. But she despised the proposal, hoping her ladyship wished her better than to marry a poor wanderer. The lady addressed herself to her second daughter, who answered as the eldest. Then the lady spoke to her third daughter, about nineteen years of age, who very frankly said, Madam, I'll be very willing to marry him, but I fear he will not take me. To which the lady replied, If that be all your objection, I'll soon get you an answer. Next night at supper the lady said to Mr. Knox, Sir, I have been considering upon a wife to you, and find one very willing. To which Knox said, Who is it, madam? She answered, My young daughter sitting by you at the table. Then, addressing himself to the young lady, he said, My bird, are you willing to marry me? She answered, Yes, sir, only I fear you will not be willing to take me. He said, My bird, if you be willing to take me, you must take your venture of God's providence as I do. I go through the country sometimes on my foot, with a wallet on my arm, a shirt, a clean band, and a Bible in it. You may put some things in it for yourself, and if I bid you take the wallet, you must do it, and go where I go, and lodge where I lodge. Sir, says she, I'll do all this. Will you be as good as your word? Yes, I will. Upon which the marriage was concluded, and she lived happily with him and had several children by him. She went with him to Geneva, and as he was ascending a hill, as there are many near that place, she got up to the top of it before him, and took the wallet on her arm, and sitting down, said, Now, good man, am I not as good as my word? She afterward lived with him when he was minister at Edinburgh. I am told, adds Mr. Miller, that one of that Lady Ochiltree's daughters, a sister of John Knox's wife, was married to Thomas Miller of Temple, one of my predecessors. Unquote. Letters to Wadrow, Volume 19, Number 197. The curious interview which took place between Mrs. Welsh and King James when she petitioned him for permission to her husband to return to his native country for the benefit of his health must be too familiar to our readers to be here repeated. Footnote. Welsh and the other ministers had been banished the king's dominions for life. Among the ladies of rank who in the reign of King James VI were distinguished for their piety and devotedness to the liberties of the church were Lady Lilius Graham, Countess of Wigton, to whom Mr. John Welsh, who intimately knew her, wrote that famous letter from Blackness Castle, which has been repeatedly printed and often admired. Footnote. Select biographies printed for the Wadrow Society, Volume 1, page 18. Lady Anne Livingstone, Countess of Eglinton, who, although bred at court, yet proved a subdued and eminent Christian and an encourager of piety and truth, footnote, select biographies printed for the Wadrow Society, volume 1, page 347. Lady Margaret Livingstone, Countess of Wigton, the friend and patron of Mr. John Livingstone, and whom, together with the two preceding, he classes among the professors in the Church of Scotland of his acquaintance, who were eminent for grace and gifts, and omitting many others, Lady Margaret Cunningham, sister to the Marchioness of Hamilton, 
who was married first to Sir James Hamilton of Evandale, secondly to Sir James Maxwell of Calderwood, a lady whom Robert Boyd, in recording her death, which took place about September 1623, describes as that virtuous lady, equal if not beyond any I have known in Scotland, a woman of an excellent spirit and many crosses through her whole life, diligent and active, and a fearer of God. Footnote, Wadrow's Life of Boyd, printed for the Maitland Club, page 266. In the reign of Charles I, a public-spirited interest in the cause of religious and ecclesiastical freedom prevailed still more among women of all classes in our country. Those in the humbler ranks became famous for their resolute opposition to the reading of the Black Service Book, which was to be read for the first time by the Dean of Edinburgh in the Old Church of St. Giles on Sabbath, July 23, 1637. To witness the scene, an immense crowd of people had assembled, and among the audience were the Lord Chancellor, the Lords of the Privy Council, the Judges, and Bishops. At the stated hour, the Dean ascended the reading desk, arrayed in his surplice, and opened the service book. But no sooner did he begin to read than the utmost confusion and uproar prevailed. The indignation of the people was roused. False anti-Christian, wolf, beastly-bellied god, crafty fox, ill-hanged thief, were some of the emphatic appellations which came pouring in upon him from a hundred tongues, and which told him that he occupied a perilous position. But the person whose fervent zeal was most conspicuous on that occasion was a humble female who kept a cabbage stall at the Tron Kirk, and who was sitting near the reading desk. Greatly excited at the dean's presumption, this female, whose name was Janet Geddes, a name familiar in Scotland as a household word, exclaimed at the top of her voice, Villain, dost thou say mass at my lug? And sitting the action to the word, launched the cutty-stool on which she had been sitting at his head, intending, as a contemporary writer remarks, to have given him a ticket of remembrance. But joking became his safeguard at that time. Footnote. The immortal Janet Geddes, as she is styled in a pamphlet of the period, Edinburgh's Joy, etc., 1661, survived long after her heroic onslaught on the deed of Dean of Edinburgh. She kept a cabbage stall at the Tron Kirk as late as 1661. She is specially mentioned in the Mercurius Caledonius, a newspaper published immediately after the Restoration, as having taken a prominent share in the rejoicings on the coronation of Charles II in 1661. See Wilson's Memorials of Edinburgh in Volume 1, page 92-93, and Volume 2, page 30. The same writer adds, The church was immediately emptied of the most part of the congregation, and the doors thereof barred at the commandment of the secular power. A good Christian woman, much desirous to remove, perceiving she could get no passage patent, betook herself to her Bible in a remote corner of the church, as she was there stopping her ears at the voice of the popish charmers, whom she remarked to be very headstrong in the public practice of their anti-Christian rudiments, a young man sitting behind her began to sound forth, Amen. At the hearing thereof she quickly turned her about, and after she had warmed both his cheeks with the weight of her hands, she thus shot against him the thunderbolt of her zeal. False thief, said she, 
Is there no other part of the kirk to sing mass in, but thou must sing it at my lug? The young man, being dashed with such a hot, unexpected recounter, gave place to silence in sign of his recantation. I cannot here omit a worthy reproof given at the same time by a truly religious matron, for when she perceived one of Ishmael's mocking daughters to deride her for her fervent expressions in behalf of her heavenly master, she thus sharply rebuked her with an elevated voice, saying, Woe be to those that laugh when Zion mourns. Footnote Brief and true relation of the broil which fell out on the Lord's Day, the 23rd of July, 1637, through the occasion of a black, popish, and superstitious service book, which was then illegally introduced and impudently vented within the churches of Edinburgh, published August thereafter, printed in Ross, Relation, etc., Appendix, page 198 and 199. At that period, the gentler sects were particularly unceremonious toward turncoat or time-serving ministers. Bailey gives a very graphic account of the treatment Mr. William Annan, the prelatic minister of air, met with from the women of Glasgow. At the outgoing of the church, about thirty or forty of our honestest women in one voice before the bishop and magistrates did fall in railing, cursing, scolding with clamors on Mr. William Annan. Some two of the meanest were taken to the toll booth. All the day over, up and down the streets where he went, he got threats of sundry in words and looks. But after supper, when needlessly he will go to visit the bishop, he is no sinner on the causey at nine o'clock on a weeknight with three or four ministers with him but some hundreds of enraged women of all qualities are about him with neaves and staves and peats, but no stones. They beat him sore, his cloak, ruff, hat were rent. However, upon his cries and candles set out from many windows, he escaped all bloody wounds. Yet he was in great danger even of killing. Footnote, Bailey's Letters and Journals, Volume 1, page 21. In this and in some other instances, the indignation of the honest women of those days at renegade or persecuting clergymen may have carried them somewhat beyond the bounds of moderation. On other occasions, acting more decorously, they assembled peaceably together to petition the government for liberty to the non-conforming ministers to preach wherever they were called or had opportunity. And though precluded from bearing a part in public debates, they contemplated with deepest interest those ecclesiastical movements which, guided by men of great talents, firmness, and spirit, issued in the glorious triumph of the church over the attempts of the court to enslave her. Nor was this interest limited to women in the humbler and middle classes of society. The baronesses, countesses, marchionesses, and the duchesses of the day partook of it and encouraged their husbands and their sons to stand by the church in her struggles for freedom regardless of the frowns and the threats of power. The zeal with which the, the Marchioness of Hamilton, Lady Boyd, and Lady Colcross maintained the good cause appears from the brief notices of their lives which have been transmitted to our time, and to these might be added the names of other ladies in high life, many of whom would doubtless have gladly subscribed the National Covenant of 1638 had it been the practice for ladies to subscribe that document. Footnote. 
Many of the subscribed copies of the National Covenant as sworn at that period have been carefully examined by David Lang, Esquire, Signet Library, and from the absence of the names of ladies it appears not to have been customary for ladies to swear and subscribe it. In describing some of the numerous copies of that covenant, signed in different parts of the country in 1638, he, however, took notice some time ago in a communication to the Society of Antiquaries of one in the Society's museum which seems to be quite peculiar in having the names of several ladies. From the the notarial attestations on the back of a great many persons in the parish of Maybole who adhered to the covenant but were unable to write, he inferred that this copy had been signed in that district of Ayrshire. In the first line of the signatures toward the right-hand side along with the names of Montrose, Lothian, Loudon, and Castillus, are those of Jean Hamilton, evidently the sister of the Marquis of Hamilton, and wife of the Earl of Castillus, and of Margaret Kennedy, their daughter, who afterward became the wife of Bishop Burnett. Lower down toward the right hand of the parchment are the names of other ladies who cannot now be so readily identified, Margaret Stewart, Jean Stewart, Griselle Blair, Isabel Gimmel, Helen Kennedy, Elizabeth Hewitt, Anna Stewart, Elizabeth Stewart, Dame Helen Bennett, and Janet Ferguson. For the information contained in this note, I am indebted to the kindness of Mr. Lang, whose extensive acquaintance with Scottish history is so much at the service of others. In the reign of Charles II, the fidelity of the Presbyterians was put to a more severe test than it had ever been before. Charles became a ruthless persecutor, inclining at one time in matters of religion to popery and another to hobbism. It was natural for him to persecute. Popery, the true Antichrist, which puts enmity in the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman, is essentially persecuting. Hobbism which maintains that virtue and vice are created by the will of the civil magistrate and that the king's conscience is the standard for all the consciences of his subjects, just as the great clock rules all the lesser clocks of the town, is no less essentially persecuting. Whether then Charles is considered as a papist or a hobbist, he was prompted by his creed to persecute. In addition to this, it is to be observed that the Presbyterian Church of Scotland has had excited his irreconcilable hatred, not only from its being unfriendly to despotism, but from its strict discipline, the experience of which in early life had made a long-lasting impression on his mind. All these things being considered, the motives inducing his determination, a determination from which he never swerved to destroy the Scottish Presbyterian Church, are easily explained. To assist him in his work, a set of men, both statesmen and churchmen, preeminently unprincipled, of whom Middleton, Lauderdale, and Sharp may be considered as the representatives, were at his service. Many of these had sworn the solemn league and covenant and had been zealous for it in the palmy days when its champions walked in silver slippers. But they were too worldly wise to strive against wind and tide. They were, in fact, just such men as Bunyan describes in his Pilgrim's Progress, My Lord Turnabout, my Lord Time Server, Mr. Facing Both Ways, Mr. Anything, Mr. Two Tongues, Mr. Hold the World, Mr. Money Love, and Mr. Save All. Such servile agents, it is evident, were in no respect actuated, 
in persecuting the Presbyterians by motives of conscience, as some persecutors have been, but solely by corrupted and interested views. Had the king changed his religion every half year, they would have changed theirs and have been equally zealous in persecuting all who refused to make a similar change. But this fiery ordeal, the faith, the devotedness, and the heroism of the pious women of Scotland stood. We find them in every station of life maintaining their fidelity to their conscientious convictions in the midst of severe sufferings. With the ejected ministers they deeply sympathized, and their sympathy with them they testified in many ways, nor did they feel or show much respect to the intruded curates. This was true even as to the more ignorant women in the lower ranks. Many of this class signalized themselves by their opposition to the intrusion of the curates as in Iron Grey, where a body of them boldly assailed a party of the king's guard who came to that parish with the view of promoting the intrusion of a curate into the place of their favorite ejected minister, Mr. John Welsh. A party with some messengers, says Mr. John Blackadder, was sent with a curate to intimate that another curate was to enter the kirk for their ordinary. Some women of the parish, hearing thereof before, placed themselves in the kirkyard and furnished themselves with their ordinary weapons of stones, whereof they gathered store, and thus when the messenger and party of rascals with swords and pistols came, the women so maintained their ground, defending themselves under the kirk dyke, that after a hot skirmish the curate, messengers, and party without, not presuming to enter, did at length take themselves to retreat with the honorable blay marks they had got at that conflict. Footnote, Blackadder's Memoirs, Manuscript Copy in Advocate's Library. Nor was this by any means a singular case where the same writer adds, Many such affronts did these prelates' curates meet with in their essays to enter Kirk's after that manner, especially by women, which was a testimony of general dislike and aversion to submit to them as their ministers. In a similar way does Kirkton speak. After stating that the first transgressors of this kind were, as I remember, the poor people of Iron Grey, and that the next offenders were in Kirkcudbright, where some ten women were the first incarcerate in Edinburgh, and thereafter set with papers on their heads, he goes on to say, but these women were followed by, I believe, a hundred congregations up and down the country, though the punishment became banishment to America, cruel whipping, and heavy fines. He did, however, at the same time, add, These extravagant practices of the rabble were no way approved by the godly and judicious Presbyterians. Yea, they were ordinarily the actions of the profane and ignorant, but I think they were enough to demonstrate to the world what respect or affection the curate should find among their congregations. Footnote, Kirkton's History, pages 162 and 163. This favorable disposition to the suffering cause was not, however, limited to ignorant women in the lower ranks. It was partaken of more largely and displayed more intelligently by the great body of well-informed women in the lower and middle ranks, and even by many of them in the higher, to some of whom the reader is introduced in this volume. At field meetings they were often present. Not many gentlemen of estates, says Kirkton, durst come, but many ladies, gentlewomen, and commons came in great multitudes. Footnote, Kirkton's History, pages 352 and 353. 
quote, a vast multitude, says the editor of Kirkton, of the female sex in Scotland, headed by women of high rank, such as the Duchess of Hamilton, Ladies Roths, Wigton, Loudon, Colville, etc., privately encouraged or openly followed the field preachers, end quote. The agents appointed by the government throughout the country for putting in execution the laws for suppressing conventicles and other ecclesiastical disorders, so-called, had upon all occasions represented to the Privy Council that women were the chief fomenters of these disorders. Footnote, Register of Acts of Privy Council, January 23, 1684. Besides supporting the persecuted cause of presbytery themselves, these ladies, by their intelligent piety and firmness of mind, had a powerful influence in infusing the principles of nonconformity into their husbands and in sustaining on many occasions their wavering resolution. Archbishop Sharp complained heavily of this, and it gave peculiar energy and bitterness to his hatred of Presbyterian women, whom he was in the habit of branding with every term of opprobrium and contempt. In a letter to a lady who acquired notoriety in her day by the vigorous suppression of conventicles, and of whom we shall afterwards speak more particularly, footnote, this was Anne Keith, a daughter of Keith of Benholm, brother to Earl Marischal, and by the courtesy of the time styled Lady Methven, her husband being Patrick Smith of Methven. Sharp's letter to her is dated St. Andrews, March 27, 1679. He says, I am glad to find your husband, a gentleman noted for his loyalty to the king and affection to the church, is so happy as to have a consort of the same principles and inclinations for the public sentiment, who has given proof of her aversion to join in society with separatists and partaking of that sin to which so many of that sex do tempt their husbands in this evil time, when schism, sedition, and rebellion are gloried in, though Christianity does condemn them as the greatest crimes. Footnote, Kirkton's History, pages 355 to 361. The unyielding steadfastness displayed by so many of the women of Scotland in the cause of nonconformity was a perplexing case to the government. Imprisonment, they saw, would not remedy the evil, for they could not find prisons to hold a tithe of those who were guilty. The method they adopted in making the husband responsible for the religious sentiments of his wife and in punishing him, though a conformist himself, for her nonconformity if not more effectual, proved, as may easily be conceived, a prolific source of domestic contention and misery. Many husbands here, says a writer of that period in relating the sufferings of Galloway and Nithsdale in 1666, who yield to the full length, are punished by fining, theft, and quarter for their wives' non-obedience. And ye know, sir, that it is hard. There are many wives who will not be commanded by their husbands in lesser things than this. But I must tell you, this hath occasioned much contention, fire, and strife in families, and brought it to this height, that some wives are forced to flee from their husbands and forced to seek a shelter elsewhere, and so the poor good man is doubly punished for all his conformity. Footnote, Wadrill Manuscript, Volume 27, Number 6. Another writer of that period also says, When these delating courts, Footnote, 
These were circuit courts held in various parts of the country for discovering and punishing nonconformists. When these debating courts came through the country, husbands were engaged to bring their wives to the courts and to the kirk, or to put them away and never to own them again, which many of them did. So after the women had wandered abroad, and when they came home again, their husbands and other relations took them by force to the kirk. Some of them fell a sound when they were taken off the horses' backs. Others of them gave a testimony that enraged the curate. Footnote, an account of the sufferings in Tunnergirth and other parishes in Annan, Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 37, Number 14. Finding after the persecution had continued for more than twenty years that the zeal of the ladies against prelacy was by no means abated, and that the methods hitherto adopted in meeting the evil had proved singularly unsuccessful, the government came to the resolution of meeting it by severely fining the husbands of such ladies as withdrew from their parish churches. Such a punishment, they imagined, was better calculated than any other to strike terror and to make husbands active in their endeavors to persuade their wives to attend the church. Many husbands were thus fined in heavy sums for their wives' irregularities. The case of Sir William Scott of Harden was very severe. His wife, Christian Boyd, sixth daughter of Lady Boyd, who is noticed in this volume, having declined to attend the curate, Sir William was on that account fined by the Privy Council in November 1683 in the sum of 1,500 pounds sterling. Footnote, Fountain Ball's Decisions, Volume 1, page 243. And long imprisoned in the castle of Edinburgh, he was forced to compromise and pay the fine, which in those days was an enormous sum. He desired the Privy Council to relieve him of responsibility for his wife's delinquencies in future, as she would on no consideration engage to hear the curates. But the council held that husbands were to be accounted masters of their wives de jure, whatever might be the case de facto. Lady Scott was under the necessity of leaving her husband, and she retired into England and died at Newcastle. Footnote, Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 11, Folio Number 3. But the making husbands responsible for the conformity of their wives and thus throwing a bone of contention into families was only a small part of the sufferings endured by many non-conforming women of that period on account of their principles. The sufferings of a few and only a few of them are recorded in this volume. None of our female worthies were indeed subjected to the torture of the boot or of the thumbscrew, though some of them were threatened with the former punishment. Footnote Mrs. Crawford, Mrs. Callow, a rich widow, and Mrs. Duncan, a minister's widow, were so threatened. After Mr. Mitchell's attempt on the wife of Archbishop Sharp, they were imprisoned under suspicion of knowing who the intended assassin was, and on being brought before the council and strictly interrogated concerning houses that lodged Whigs or kept conventicles, or if they knew the name of the assassin, they were on refusing to answer threatened with the boot and the last of these ladies would one day have actually endured the torture had it not been for the Duke of Roth, who told the council that it was not proper for gentlewomen to wear boots. Kirkton's History, pages 283 and 284. Dalziel also threatened Mary and Harvey with the boot. But these women were cruelly tortured in other ways. 
In the parish of Auchinleck, a young woman, for refusing the oath of abjuration, had her finger burned with fire matches till the white bone appeared. In the same parish, Major White's soldiers took a young woman in a house and put a fiery coal into the palm of her hand to make her tell what was asked her. Footnote, Wadrill Manuscripts, Volume 37, Number 1. This paper was communicated to Wadrill by Mr. Alexander Shields. Hundreds of women were fined in large sums of money. Hundreds of them were imprisoned. Hundreds of them were banished to His Majesty's plantations and discharged from ever returning to this kingdom under the pain of death to be inflicted on them without mercy. And before being shipped off, they were in many cases burned on the cheek by the hands of the hangman with a red-hot iron, while some of them, being too old to banish, after lying in prison till their persecutors were weary of confining them and grudged the expense of supporting them, were whipped, burned on the cheek, and dismissed. Footnote, Registry of Acts Privy Council, July 14, 1685. Hundreds of these women, to escape imprisonment, banishment, and other hardships, were under the necessity of leaving their houses in the cold winter season and of lodging in rocks and caves amid frost and snow. And not to mention those women who were put to cruel death, hundreds more, even when the hostility of the government was not directed against themselves personally, were greatly tried from the sufferings to which their husbands, from their opposition to or non-compliance with the oppressive measures of the government, were subjected. In how many instances, while the husband was compelled to flee for safety, did the wife suffer the execrable barbarity of savage troopers who, visiting her house, would abuse and threaten her in the very spirit and language of hell, seize upon her corn and meal, and throw them into the dunghill, or otherwise destroy them, plunder her of her poultry, butter, cheese, and bedclothes, shoot or carry away her sheep and cattle, reducing her and her family to great distress. If the husband was fined, intercommuned, imprisoned, tortured, banished, forfeited in life and property, or put to death, the wife suffered. And who can calculate the mental agony and temporal privations which many a wife with her children then experienced in consequence of the injustice and cruelty perpetrated upon her husband? Such were the sufferings endured for conscience' sake during that dark period by thousands of the tender sex in our unhappy country. Never indeed did a severer period of trial pass over the Church of Scotland than during the persecution. Previously she had fought with various success many a battle against kings and statemen, but even when she had sustained defeat she again mustered her forces and by persevering effort recovered the ground she had lost. During the persecution it was different. It was all disaster. She was not indeed destroyed, which was what her enemies aimed at, but she was laid prostrate, a bleeding and helpless victim. All she could do was to exercise constancy, patience, and fortitude under the fury of her enemies. Had the period of suffering been of short duration, these graces it would have been easier to exercise. But it lasted for nearly a whole generation. It was the twenty-eight years' conflict, and a conflict of a very different sort from the ten years' conflict of our own day. The latter was running with the footmen in the land of peace. The former was contending with horses in the swelling of Jordan. 
It is extremely gratifying to find that our countrywomen who submitted to such sufferings in the cause of presbytery were generally distinguished for sincere and enlightened piety. Apart from this, knowledge, zeal, courage, and self-sacrifice, even to the death, are of little estimation in the sight of God and of little advantage to the possessor. Though I give my body to be burned and have not charity or love, it profiteth me nothing. But this charity, this love in its most extensive sense, embracing both God and man, was the predominating element in the character of those of whom we now speak. Their piety was indeed the true reason and not obstinacy or fanaticism, as their enemies calumniously affirmed, why they submitted to suffer what they did for matters of religion. The fear of God and respect to His authority were their governing principles. And so long as these principles held the sway in their understanding, consciences, and hearts, they could not, at the bidding of any man, renounce what they believed to be the truth of God and profess as truth what they believed to be a lie, whatever it might cost them. Nor were the persecutors ignorant of the fact that the sufferers were generally distinguished for godliness. They knew it well. It it resembling in disposition the first murderer Cain, who was of the wicked one, and slew his brother because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous, it was chiefly this which prompted them to hate and murder their inoffensive victims. So well did they know it, that they regarded irreligion or profanity as sufficient to clear a man or woman of all suspicion of the taint of Presbyterianism. As a proof of this, we may quote the following passage from Kirkton's history in reference to what took place in the parish of Wistown in Clydesdale. The church, says he, being vacant and a curate to enter, the people rose in a tumult and with stones and batons chased the curate and his company out of the field. A lady in that parish was blamed as a ringleader in the tumult and brought before the council. She came to the bar, and after her libel was read, the chancellor asked if these accusations were true or not. She answered briefly, The devil, one word, was true in them. The counselors looked one upon another, and the chancellor replied, Well, madam, I adjourn you for fifteen days, which never yet had an end, and there her persecution ended. Such virtue there was in a short curse, fully to satisfy such governors. And many thought it good policy to demonstrate themselves to be honest, profane people that they might vindicate themselves of the dangerous suspicion of being Presbyterians. Footnote, Kirkton's History, pages 354 and 355. In our sketches we have included several ladies who, though not sufferers during the persecution, either in their own persons or in their friends, sympathized with and relieved the sufferers. Nor was it only from such ladies as the Duchess of Hamilton, the Duchess of Roths, and others who favored the persecuted principles that the evil and treated covenanters met with sympathy and relief, but even from many ladies who, though not attached to the Presbyterian cause themselves, were enemies to intolerance and persecution. Many of the wanderers could bear the same testimony to the generosity and humanity of woman which is borne by a celebrated traveler. Footnote, Mr. Ledyard. To a woman, says he, I never addressed myself in the language of decency and friendship without receiving a decent and friendly answer. If I was hungry or thirsty, wet or sick, 
they did not hesitate like men to perform a generous action. In so free and kind a manner did they contribute to my relief that if I was dry, I drank the sweetest draught, and if hungry, I ate the coarsest morsel with a double relish. Of this, so numerous were the examples that were constantly occurring during the persecution as to corroborate the evidence upon which the poet, Crabbe, pronounces compassion as peculiarly characteristic of the female heart. Wherever grief and want retreat, in woman they compassion find. She makes the female breast her, her seat and dictates mercy to the mind. But true as this eulogium on the female character may be in the main, instances are to be met with in which even the heart of woman has become steeled against every humane feeling. And such instances, though happily of rare occurrence, were to be met with during the period of the persecution. The Countess of Perth was one of these instances. Her treatment of the wife of Alexander Hume, portioner of Hume, in the close of the year 1682, was revoltingly atrocious. Mr. Hume was a nonconformist, and though nothing criminal was proved against him, he was condemned to die at the Market Cross of Edinburgh upon the 29th of December. He was offered his life if he would take the test which he refused to do. By the interest of his friends at court, a remission was, however, procured from the king, which came down to Edinburgh four or five days before his execution. But it was kept up by the Earl of Perth, a relentless persecutor who was then Chancellor. On the day of Hume's execution, his wife went to the Chancellor's lady and begged her, in such moving terms as might have softened even a cold and hard heart, to interpose for her husband's life urging that she had five small children. But the heart of the countess was harder than the nether millstone. She had no more feeling for the afflicted wife and her children than if they had been so many brute beasts. Not only did she refuse to comply with her prayer, but with infernal cruelty, barbed and venomed, the refusal with language so coarsely savage as is hardly to be repeated. Her answer was, I have no more regard to you than to a bitch and five whelps. Footnote, her answer is not recorded in Wadrow's History, Volume 3, page 417, but it is given in his manuscript, Volume 37, number 31. Lady Methven, formerly referred to, is another instance. To put down a large field conventicle on her husband's ground, she boldly marched forth, armed with a gun and sword, at the head of her vassals, swearing by the God of heaven that she would sooner sacrifice her life than allow the rebellious Whigs to hold their rebellious meeting on his ground. But this intrepid energy, for which the enemies of the Covenanters have held her up as a heroine, was nothing more than animal courage, the mere effect of iron nerves. From her letters it is evident, if we are to judge from the oaths with which they are interlarded, that she was a profane, godless woman, and it is no less evident from them that inveterate malignity to the Covenanters was her impelling principle. In a letter to her husband, then at London, with the Marquis of Montrose, dated Methven Wood, October 15, 1678, she thus describes her exploits. My precious love, a multitude of men and women from east, west, and south came the thirteenth day of this October to hold a field conventicle, two bows draft above our church. They had their tents set up before the sun upon your ground. 
I, seeing them flocking to it, sent through your ground, and charged them to repair to your brother David, the Bailey, and me to the castle hill, where we had but sixty armed men. Your brother, with drawn sword and bent pistol, I, with the light horseman's piece bent, on my left arm, and a drawn tuck in my right hand, all your servants well armed, marched forward and kept the one half of them fronting with the other, that were guarding their minister and their tent, which is their standard. That near party that we yoked with, most of them were St. Johnston's people. Many of them had no will to be known, but rode off to see what we would do. They marched toward Busby. We marched bewest them and gained ground before they could gather in a body. They sent off a party of a hundred men to see what we meant, to hinder them to meet. We told them if we would not go from the parish of Meth then presently, it should be a bloody day. For I protested on your brother before God, we would wear our lives upon them before they should preach in our regality or perish. They said they would preach. We charged them either to fight or fly. They drew, a, they drew to a council amongst themselves what to do. At last, about two hours in the afternoon, they would go away if we would let the body that was above the church with the tent march freely after them. We were content, knowing they were ten times as many as we were, and our advantage was keeping the one half a mile, the one half a mile from the other by marching in order betwixt them. They, seeing we were desperate, marched our the pow, and so we went to the church and heard a feared minister preach. They have sworn not to stand with such an affront, but resolved to come the next Lord's Day, and I, in the Lord's strength, attend to accost them with all that will come to assist us. I have caused your officer, worn a solemn court of vassals, tenants, and all within our power, to meet on Thursday, where I intend, if God will, to be present, and there to order them, in God and our King's name, to convene well armed to the kirkyard on Sabbath morning, by eight hours, where your brother and I, with all our servant men and others we can make, shall march to them, and if the God of heaven will, they shall either fight or go out of our parish. Footnote. In another letter to her husband, she says, They are an ignorant, wicked pack. The Lord God clear the nation of them. The letter goes on. My blessed love, comfort yourself in this, that if the fanatics should chance to kill me, it shall not be for naught. I was wounded for our gracious King, and now in the strength of the Lord of Heaven I'll hazard my person with the men I may command before these rebels rest where ye have power. Sore I miss you, but now more than ever. This is, this is the first opposition that they have encountered so as to force them to flee out of a parish. God grant it be good Hansel. There would be no fear of it if we were all steel to the back. My precious, I am so transported with zeal to beat the Whigs that I almost forgot to tell you my Lord Marquis of Montrose hath two virtuous ladies to his sisters, and it is one of the loveliest sights in all Scotland, their nunnery. This letter is dated Methven Wood, the 15th instant, 1678. Footnote, Kirkton's History, pages 355 to 361. About a year after this, Lady Methven met with a melancholy death. She fell off her horse, and her brains were dashed out upon the very spot where she opposed persons going to that meeting, namely at the southwest end of Methven Wood. Footnote, Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 
33, folio number 143. Of a very different character were the ladies whose memoirs we have attempted. So far from hating, maligning, and adding to the hardships of the persecuted, they protected and relieved them, and in many cases shared in their sufferings. They were indeed distinguished by general excellence of character and are entitled to both the grateful remembrance and imitation of posterity. They form a part of the great cloud of witnesses with which we are encompassed. Though belonging to past generations whose bodies are now sleeping in the dust and by, and whose spirits have gone to the eternal world, they yet speak. By their piety toward God, not less than their benevolence toward man, by the exemplary part they acted in every relation of life, as daughters, as sisters, as mothers, by their liberality in supporting the ordinances of the gospel, and in encouraging its faithful ministers, by the magnanimity with which they suffered either personally or relatively in the cause of truth, often rivaling the most noble examples of Christian heroism to be found in the Church's history, they became instructors to the living generation in passing through this scene of temptation and trial. They have especially by the magnanimity with which they suffered in the cause of truth emphatically taught us the important principle that we are in all things and at all times to do what is right. And as to the disapprobation, opposition, and persecution of men in whatever way manifested or to whatever extent, we are to let that take its chance a principle, the importance of which it is difficult to overestimate, which lies at the foundation of all that is great and good in character, which has enabled the greatest and the best of men by the blessing of God to achieve the great purposes they have formed for advancing the highest interests of mankind, and upon which it is necessary for the good soldier of Christ to act in every age, in an age in which the Church enjoys tranquility as well as when she suffers persecution. The Ladies of the Covenant Lady Anne Cunningham, Marchioness of Hamilton Lady Anne Cunningham was the fourth daughter of James, seventh Earl of Glencairn by his first wife Margaret, second daughter of Sir Colin Campbell of Glenurchie. Footnote, Douglas Peerage of Scotland, Volume 1, page 636 her ancestors on the father's side were among the first of the Scottish peers who embraced the Reformed doctrine. In 1640, her great-great-grandfather William, 4th Earl of Glencairn, and her great-grandfather, then Lord Kilmowers, afterward 5th Earl of Glencairn, appear among the converts of the Reformed faith. Her great-grandfather in particular, whose piety and benevolence procured him the honorable appellation of the Good Earl, Footnote, there is a portrait of this nobleman in Pinkerton's Scottish Gallery of Portraits, Volume 2. Was an ardent and steady promoter of the Reformation, for which he was eminently qualified by his superior learning and abilities, as well as by the influence of his high station. And he carefully instructed his children in its principles. He regularly attended the sermons of John Knox on the Reformers returning to Scotland in 1554 and in 1556 he invited him to administer the sacrament of the Lord's Supper after the manner of the Reformed Church in his baronial mansion of Finlayston in the parish of Kilmalcolm when he himself 
his countess, and two of their sons with a number of their friends partook of that solemn ordinance. Footnote. McCree's Life of Knox, Volume 1, page 178. Knox's History, Wadrill Society Edition, Volume 1, page 250. The silver cups which were used by Knox on this occasion are still carefully preserved, and the use of them was given at the time of dispensing the sacrament in the parish church of Kilmalcolm, so long as the Glencairn family resided at Finlayston. He also assisted the reformers by his pen, being the, au- being the author of a satirical poem upon the Roman Catholic monks, entitled An Epistle Direct from the Holy Hermit of Alaret. Footnote. Thomas Dushti of Alaret or Loretto near Musselburgh. This person was the founder of the chapel of Our Lady of Loreto, 1533. Knox's History, Wadrill Society Edition, Volume 1, pages 72 and 73. To his brethren, the Grey Friars, nor did he shrink from drawing the sword for their protection. In 1559, when the Reformers took up arms at Perth to defend themselves from the Queen Regent, who had collected an army and had advanced to Perth, to avenge the destruction of the Popish images by the populace of that town, he raised 1,200 horse and 1,300 foot in the west, and the passes being occupied conducted them through the mountains, traveling night and day till they reached Perth, which proved a seasonable aid to the reformers, and by the consternation with which it inspired the Queen Regent, prevented the effusion of blood. This nobleman often visited Knox on his deathbed, and he died in 1574. Lady Anne's father, James, 7th Earl of Glencairn, was also a friend to the liberties and religion of his country. He was one of those noblemen who, when the Duke of Lennox, an emissary of the court of France, had acquired a complete influence over James VI, soon after his assuming the reins of government, and had effected an entire change in the court, filling it with persons devoted to popery and arbitrary power, resolved to take possession of the king's person and removing Lennox and another favorite, the Earl of Arran, from him, to take upon themselves the direction of public affairs. With this view, on meeting with the king returning from hunting in Athol, several of them invited him to Ruthven Castle, where they effected their purpose, and hence this enterprise was called the Raid of Ruthven. Of the early life of Lady Anne we possess no information. In the beginning of the year 1603, she was married to Lord James, the son and heir presumptive of John, first Marquis of Hamilton. By her marriage contract, dated 30th of January 1603, which received the consent of both their fathers, the marriage portion is 40,000 mercs, and the yearly jointure 56 childers of victual and 500 pounds of money rent. Footnote Descriptive Catalogue of the Hamilton Papers in the Miscellany of the Maitland Club, Volume 4, page 201. Lady Hamilton inherited from her father's family an ardent zeal for presbytery. During the first part of her life, an almost continued contest existed between James VI and the Church of Scotland in reference to that form of church government. As has been said in the introduction, James commenced that struggle for absolute power, which was resolutely persevered in by his son and his two grandsons. And to reach his purpose, he deemed it necessary to undermine the Presbyterian government of the Church of Scotland. 
With his usual profanity, he asserted that monarchy and presbytery agreed as well as God and the devil. No assertion could be more unfounded. It cannot indeed be denied that the republicanism of Presbyterian church government is unfriendly to absolute or despotic monarchy. The fundamental principle of presbytery, that spiritual power is lodged exclusively in the church courts, uncontrolled by the civil magistrate, greatly limits the power of monarchs, saying to them when they reach the borders of ecclesiastical jurisdiction, Hitherto shalt thou come, and no further, and naturally leads men to conclude that, by parity of reason, temporal power should be lodged in a parliament. But that presbytery is hostile to limited monarchy is disproved by the whole of its history in Scotland, for no body of people was ever more devoted to the throne than the Presbyterians. And indeed, they often carried their loyalty to a reprehensible and extravagant excess. It was not, however, a limited, but an absolute monarchy on the erection of which James's heart was set. And seeing clearly enough that presbytery was the enemy of such a monarchy, he made every effort to overthrow it and to introduce prelacy which he well knew would be a more effectual instrument in advancing his design. These efforts he was not permitted to make without opposition. A body of ministers, respectable for number and still more respectable for their talents, piety, and zeal, resolutely and perseveringly resisted him till the close of his life. They maintained that by attempting to impose upon the church the form of government and mode of worship which were most accordant with his inclinations, and by endeavoring to control her in her administration, he was invading the prerogative of Christ, the sole king and head of the church, who alone had the right to settle the form of her government, and by whose authority alone she was to be guided in her administration. By threats, bribes, imprisonment, and banishment, James labored hard to get them to yield to his wishes, but animated by a high sense of duty, they were not to be overborne, and largely imbued with the spirit of martyrs, they preferred enduring the, most, the utmost effects of his royal wrath, rather than make the unhallowed surrender. So much importance did they attach to their principles as to deem them worthy even of the sacrifice of their lives. We have been even waiting with joyfulness, said one of them, to give the last testimony of our blood and confirmation thereof, if it should please our God to be so favorable as to honor us with that dignity. Footnote. These are the words of Mr. John Welsh, when a prisoner in Blackness Castle, in reference to himself and his brethren, who was proceeded against by the government for holding a general assembly at Aberdeen in July 1605 in opposition to the wishes of the monarch. Select biographies printed for the Wadrill Society, Volume 1, page 23. It is the courage, zeal, and self-sacrifice with which this party contended for the rights and liberties of the Church during the reigns of James VI and Charles I that imparts to this portion of our ecclesiastical history its principal charm. To this party, the Marchioness of Hamilton adhered with great zeal, actuated by sympathy with the principles contended for, as well as by sympathy with the character of the men themselves, who, besides being the most gifted, were the most pious, active, and faithful ministers of the Church of Scotland in their day. Her husband, the Marquis of Hamilton, was not equally steadfast with herself in maintaining the liberties of the Church. Facile and ambitious, he was induced from a desire to please his sovereign to become an advocate for conformity to the five articles of Perth. 
and to exert his influence to obtain their ratification in the Scottish Parliament of 1621, where he was His Majesty's High Commissioner. This nobleman was cut off in the prime of his life, having died at London on the 2nd of March, 1625, in the 36th year of his age. Footnote, Calderwood's History, Volume 7, pages 469, 489, and 630. Small regret, says Calderwood, was made for his death for the service he made at the last Parliament. The Marchioness survived the Marquis many years, during which time she was eminently useful as an encourager of the faithful ministers of the Gospel, whom she was ever ready to shield from persecution, and to countenance in every way competent to her. When Mr. Robert Boyd of Toffrig had, a few months after his being admitted minister of Paisley, been driven out of that town by the mob who showered upon him stones and dirt, Paisley being then, as Rowdy scribes it, a nest of papists, footnote, Rowe's History of the Kirk of Scotland, page 438, she was earnestly desirous to take that great and good man under her protection and invited him to accept of the charge of the parish of Cambuslang, which was at that time vacant. Mr. James Bruce, writing to him from Glasgow in October 1626, says, the parish of Cambuslang is now vacant, and the Lady Marchioness is earnestly desirous to have you there. Her jointure lies there. It is within three miles of Glasgow, has a reasonable stipend, besides the lady's pension which she will rather augment than diminish. You will live easier and at more peace there than at Paisley. You will have the Lady Marchioness's company, which is very desirable. This I leave to your consideration and the Lord's direction." An end, however, was put to this matter by the growing illness of Boyd which took him to Edinburgh to consult with physicians, and on reaching the capital his sickness increased till it terminated in his death on the 5th of January, 1627. Footnote, Wadrow's Life of Robert Boyd, pages 239 and 240. The name of the Marchioness stands favorably connected with that memorable revival of religion which took place at the Kirk of Schatz on the 21st of June, 1630, the Monday after the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Indeed, that revival may be said to be directly traceable to the piety of this lady, who was forward to embrace every opportunity of bringing within the reach of of others the blessed gospel which she herself so highly prized, and it originated in a circumstance apparently incidental, the breaking down of her carriage on the road at Schatz. How important the results for either good or evil to mankind, which under the government of infinite wisdom have been produced by the most trivial events. The sight of the spider's web and the pigeon's nest at the entrance of the cave in which Mohammed concealed himself diverted his pursuers from searching it and saving the life of the false prophet contributed to entail for ages upon a large part of the world the curse of the Mohammedan superstition. And in the Reformation throughout Europe, incidents equally insignificant have, on the other hand, been big with consequences the most beneficial to mankind. The circumstance of the breaking down of the Marchioness's carriage, seemingly casual as it was, resulted in some hundreds of immortal beings experiencing that blessed change of heart which unites the soul to God and which issues in everlasting salvation. The particulars, insofar as she was concerned, were these. 
As the road to Edinburgh from the west lay by the Kirk of Shots, she frequently passed that way in travelling from the place of her residence to the capital, and on such occasions she received in different instances civilities from Mr. Home. Footnote. Gillies in his historical collection calls him Mr. Hans, but this is a mistake. Both Livingstone and Wadrill give his name as in the text, Mr. Home, Minister of the Parish. At one time in particular, when on her passing through shots, accompanied with some other ladies, the carriage in which they were riding broke down in the neighborhood of the manse. Mr. Holm, on learning the accident, kindly invited them to alight and remain all night in his house as they were at a considerable distance from any convenient place of entertainment. Having accepted his invitation, they observed during their stay that besides its inconvenient situation, the man stood much in need of being repaired, and the marchioness, in return for his attentions, erected for him a new manse, in a more agreeable situation, and with superior accommodations. On receiving so substantial a favor, Mr. Home waited upon her to express his obligations and desired to know if there was anything he could do by which to testify his gratitude. All she asked was that he would be kind enough to allow her to name the ministers he should have with him as his assistants at the celebration of the Lord's Supper. This request he cordially granted. She accordingly named some of the most distinguished ministers of the day, Mr. Robert Bruce, Mr. David Dixon, and some others who had been remarkably successful as instruments in bringing many to the saving knowledge of the truth. The report that such celebrated men were to assist at the communion at that place soon circulated extensively through the country, and a vast multitude, attracted by their fame, assembled from all quarters, many of them of eminent piety, among whom were the Marchioness herself and other ladies of rank who attended at her invitation. Footnote Wadros Analecta Volume 1, page 271 Gillies Historical Collections, Volume 1, pages 309 and 310. The solemnity to which she was the means of bringing these ministers and of gathering together so great a crowd of people was accompanied in a very signal manner with the divine blessing. For several days before, much time was spent in social prayer. During all the days of the solemn occasion, the ministers were remarkably assisted. The devout who attended were in a more than ordinary degree refreshed and edified, and so largely was the spirit of grace and supplication poured out upon them that after being dismissed on the Sabbath they spent the whole night in different companies in prayer. On the Monday morning the ministers, understanding how they had been engaged and perceiving them instead of returning to their homes, still lingering at the place as if unwilling to depart from a spot which they had found in their experience to be as it were the gate of heaven, agreed to have sermon on that day, though it was not usual at that time to preach on the Monday after the dispensation of the Lord's Supper. The minister whose turn it was to officiate, having become unwell, the work of addressing the people was, at the suggestion of Lady Colcross, laid upon Mr. John Livingstone, then a young man and chaplain to the Countess of Wigton. Livingstone had before preached at Shaw and had found more liberty in preaching there than at other places. But from the great multitude of all ranks assembled on that occasion, he became so diffident that when alone in the fields in the morning, he began to think of stealing away rather than address the people. But, says he, I durst not so far distrust God, 
and so went to sermon and got good assistance. I had about one hour and a half upon the points I had meditated on. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26 Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And in the end, offering to close with some words of exhortation, I was led on about an hour's time in a strain of exhortation and warning with such liberty and melting of heart as I had never had the like in public in all my life. Footnote, Life of Mr. John Livingstone in Select Biographies, printed for the Wadrow Society, Volume 1, page 138. And such was the effect that, as Mr. Fleming observes in his Fulfilling of the Scriptures, near 500 at that time had a discernible change wrought on them, of whom most proved lively Christians afterwards. It was the sowing of a seed through Clydesdale, so as many of the most eminent Christians in that country could date either their conversion or some remarkable confirmation in their case from that day. After this, the practice of preaching on the Monday following the sacrament became general. Footnote. It may not be uninteresting to note, to quote some notices respecting this communion given by Wadrow. April 24, 1710. This day being at the shots and discoursing with Mr. Law, the minister, he tells me that the sermon was in the west end of the churchyard. He let me see the end of the craze to which, it is said, Mr. Livingstone went up to study the morning before he preached, as the tradition is. Another should have preached on the Monday, but he felt indisposed. It was the Lady Colcross who was there and had some special intimacy with Mr. Livingstone that put the ministers upon employing him. The minister's name at that time was Mr. Holmes, a man of an easy temper and no persecutor. And after stating that the Marchioness of Hamilton had conferred some particular favor on Mr. Home, that Mr. Home allowed her to name the ministers he should have with him at the communion, Mr. Dixon, Mr. Bruce, and others, who all came with a great many Christians at the lady's invitation, who was herself an excellent woman. Wadrow adds that he, Mr. Law, hears the particular occasion of the first sensible motion among the people was this, in the time of Mr. Livingstone's sermon, there was a soft shower of rain, and when the people began to stickle about it, he said to it, to this purpose, What a mercy it is that the Lord sifts that rain through these heavens on us and does not rain down fire and brimstone, as he did upon Sodom and Gomorrah. He further adds, This night Mr. George Barclay tells me that he discoursed Mr. Livingstone himself in Holland upon this communion and he told him that he was such a stranger to all the ministers there that the Lady Colcross was the person that put the ministers upon him, the minister that should have preached, having fallen sick, that it was somewhat that, incidentally, he spoke that gave occasion to the motion among the people, and Mr. Barclay repeated the words above. And Mr. Livingstone added, Brother, when you are strongly pressed to say anything you have not premeditated, do not offer to stop it. You know not what God has to do with it. Analecta, Volume 1, page 271. There is one point in these two accounts as to which there seems to be some discrepancy. According to Mr. Law, Messrs. Dixon and Bruce were among the ministers present, and according to Mr. Barclay, 
Livingstone was a stranger to all the ministers there. But Livingstone, before he was licensed to preach, knew at least Mr. Bruce, who, as he informs us in his life, had been in the habit of assisting his father at Lanark at the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The Marchioness of Hamilton was personally known to Mr. John Livingstone, and in his memorable characteristics he has given her a place among some of the professors in the Church of Scotland of his acquaintance who were eminent for grace and gifts. Footnote, Delect Biographies, printed for the Wadro Society, Volume 1, page 348. From his life, we also learn that whatever influence she had with the court at London, she was well inclined to use it for the protection of the persecuted nonconformists. He informs us that after he himself, Mr. Robert Blair, and others of his brethren in Ireland had been deposed in May 1632 by the Bishop of Down, and when Mr. Blair went to London to represent their cause to the government, he himself, who was to follow Mr. Blair, went previously to Scotland with the design of procuring letters from the Lady Marchioness of Hamilton and other persons of rank to some of their friends at court, vindicating him and his brethren from the charge of stirring up the people to ecstasies and enthusiasm and requesting for them toleration to preach the gospel notwithstanding their nonconformity. Footnote, Select Biographies, printed for the Wadrill Society, Volume 1, page 146. During the stirring period when the Scottish people renewed the National Covenant and successfully resisted the attempts of Charles I to impose upon them a book of canons and a liturgy, the Marchioness warmly espoused the cause of the Covenant. Footnote, the Book of Canons received the royal sanction and became law in 1635. The service book, or liturgy, was enjoined to be used by Act of Privy Council, 20th of December, 1636, and the Act was the following day proclaimed at the Cross of Edinburgh, but the liturgy itself was not published till toward the end of May, 1637. These two books were extremely unpopular in Scotland, both because they were forced upon the Church solely by royal authority without the consent of the Church herself, or without her having been even consulted, and because of the matter contained in them. The Book of Canons, among other things objected to, asserted the King's supremacy in all causes ecclesiastical as well as civil, and joined various unwarranted and superstitious rites in the observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, 
Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.